Hello, I'm Lauren Foster. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast, the weekly series where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. For the next few weeks, we're featuring episodes focused on equity investing. And for today's show, I'm joined by Jason Trennett. He's chairman of Strategus Research Partners. We covered a lot of ground in a very short time, everything from where we are in the economic cycle in the U.S. to what he would ask if he was granted a private meeting with the U.S. president. A quick note on timing. We sat down together in November before the news that the U.S. and China had reached an initial trade deal. I had a lot of fun chatting with Jason, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Jason Trennett, welcome. Thank uh, thanks so much for being here this morning. We've got so much to talk about, so we're just going to dive straight in. The first thing I'm wondering is, have central banks exhausted their ability to engender growth? I, do, I, I believe so. Uh, you know, in the 30s, out of one of the congressional hearings, there was a phrase that, uh, that was introduced into the Wall Street lexicon, which is called pushing on a string. And uh, the, the idea was that at a certain point, um, additional sources of liquidity don't do any good. Uh, you're, it's like trying to push something with a string. I think the fact that you've had uh, as much as $17 trillion in negative yielding debt, a sovereign debt globally, I think it's about $12 trillion now, is a pretty good, pretty good uh, example, a pretty good exhibit that you've exhausted uh, the ability of monetary policy to do very much. Most people aren't making, are deciding not to make decisions, uh, business decisions or, or consumer spending decisions based on the interest rate. It's more uh, the uncertainty surrounding other policies, fiscal, regulatory, and particularly trade. Okay, well, let's put on this sort of thread a little bit more. Do you think Europe and Japan are caught in a negative interest rate spiral? I do. I do. And I think that um, the reason why I believe that is that I've seen no serious policy prescriptions uh, that would use other tools, fiscal or regulatory tools in particular, to stimulate capital formation and economic growth. Um, and again, um, you have negative interest rates. There's not, there's not a lot of not a lot more you can do. There, there, there's a lot of there's not very many decisions that people aren't making based on the cost of money or the cost of capital. Uh, the the problem is that you don't have other policies in place that would provide the incentives for business people in particular to take risks. Okay. So what needs to happen to bring rates back to normal? Well, globally, you'd have to see some sort of um, concerted effort uh, again to um, focus perhaps on tax cuts uh, or or more fiscal spending, or something to get the global get global growth uh, going again. Uh, the U.S. I think uh, the trade war, notwithstanding, uh, has made some positive moves in that direction uh, with the tax cut, particularly uh, on on capex um, and regulatory easing. I'd like to see that globally, uh, more of a, a focus on using again the other tools that the governments have at their disposal. To, to stimulate growth. But uh, in the absence of that, it's going to be very difficult to get uh, long-term interest rates higher. Okay. Let's turn our focus a little bit now to the U.S. And I'm wondering, where do you think we are in the economic cycle uh, in the U.S.? The, the, um, maybe the most non-consensus view we have is that we, 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 we may not be as late in the economic cycle as it would appear. Certainly from a, a, a duration point of view, um, it would seem that we're late because this is the longest business expansion we've had uh, in the post-war period. But uh, 
Ben Bernanke said earlier this year, uh, business expansions don't die of old age, they get murdered. <laughs> and uh, that's largely the way it works. Usually the end of a cycle is driven by the fact that inflation rises to the point where the central bank feels that it must take care of it uh, and raise rates too much. Here, the real Fed funds rate right now is zero. You're 10 years into an expansion, and yet monetary policy is still very easy. So there's no reason, it seems to me, in the absence of a policy error or some sort of exogenous event, there's no reason why the expansion in the U.S. can't last another several years. Hmm, interesting. And are you seeing the same signals about the future from the equity markets as from the bond markets, or are you getting different signals? No, I think they're largely on the, everything's going up right now, really. Uh, so they're, they're, they're both, uh, I think, giving you the same signals. We're looking at, at um, if you look at credit spreads, which as opposed to, let's say, the treasury market, which I think is it's a little bit on its own, but credit spreads are largely giving you the same indication that, uh, that the equity markets are giving you. Um, Tenure treasury yields or treasury yields are extraordinarily low, much lower than they would be ordinarily. Uh, but I think, again, that has a lot to do with global liquidity and, and uh, the fact that so many of the world's central banks have negative interest rates. Okay. So let's turn to equities. Is there an alternative to equities? Right now, I can't see one that's particularly compelling. And I think, um, you know, this idea of the TINA asset class, uh, we, we wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about this in 2013. And um, if you're a fiduciary, if you need a certain if you need a certain return, uh, it's very difficult to get the returns that you would need in any other asset class. Uh, so um, with 10-year Treasury yields, again, in the U.S. at 1.8% at, um, at or in Germany at minus 35 basis points, uh, you essentially have to take more risk in order to get the returns that you need to fulfill your obligations. So what most worries you, though, about your equity call? Well, the, the, what worries me most, uh, I would argue, is that uh, certainly the trade war has not been uh, resolved with China. I think there are good signals there. In my opinion, that would do more uh, to bolster uh, the, uh, the equity call than anything I can think of. Um, certainly, uh, there's been a move towards value stocks as opposed to growth stocks. I think that's a positive indication of where we are in the business cycle. But for that to continue, you'd really have to have more of a detente between the U.S. Uh, in China. And do you think the U.S. consumer can continue to carry the load? Remarkably, um, U.S. consumer, almost the worst thing you can say about the U.S. consumer is that uh, it can't get much better. Uh, the unemployment rate is 3.6. Inflation, uh, wage, wages are up about 3. Uh, and something that's very different for Americans, at least, is uh, Americans are saving before they, they lose their job. Uh, usually for the last 50 years, normally, uh, Americans wait till, till they lost their job to start saving, which is not ideal. And, and this time around, it's, it's quite different. After the global financial crisis, uh, the level of savings actually makes the U.S. consumer pretty robust, in my opinion, to shocks. Okay. So looking at sort of a global equity strategy, what are your views on value versus growth and international versus domestic? Well, um, if, uh, if the signals that we're getting from uh, the administration regarding trade are true and that we do get some sort of detente um, on trade, it seems to me the move towards value over growth is justified and should continue, which is to say that I think that you've probably put a bottom in global growth expectations and a lot of value stocks are cheap enough so that uh, it would provide for meaningful outperformance. 
the, the international versus the U.S. in many ways is largely the same trade. Uh, U.S. is a very growthy market, uh, obviously dominated by a lot of tech companies and a lot of high flyers. Um, whereas international markets, particularly Europe, are a little bit more value oriented. So I think those will, will tend to trade in tandem. And so uh, right now, frankly, if I'm looking out six to 12 months, I, I would have more of a bias towards value stocks in the US, but also I would probably be overweight Europe um, over the US as well. So you mentioned trade, and that's a good segue to a question that's on a lot of people's minds. Do you think we'll get a trade deal with China? I do, I, and that's, uh, that's mainly because um, uh, there are there are strong signs in both the U.S. and China that uh, it's uh, it's hurting. Uh, so you have some farm bankruptcies in the U.S. You also have a situation because of the currency, where food prices in China have skyrocketed, uh, which is a big problem for uh, a semi-emerging uh, economy. Uh, I also think for the, for uh, President Trump, candidly, uh, the principles of getting reelected will start to overwhelm the principles of recasting our trade relationship with, with China, that uh, at a certain point, the um, just pure self-interest, political self-interest will, will, will uh, win. Okay, and which sectors and industries do you think would benefit most if there is a deal? Yeah, so it's, technology clearly would be the biggest, uh, would be the biggest, uh, from a U.S. perspective, would be the biggest beneficiary, and that's largely because they have the biggest portion of their revenues that come from outside the United States. I also think industrials, uh, industrial companies would do uh, would do quite well. Um, if things really get cooking, you'd probably see, uh, you could even see energy and materials uh, sectors do a bit better. But we're not quite there yet, but th that would be, I think, probably the strongest um, signal that you are actually in a global growth uh, a global growth phase. So I'd love to shift a little bit to the U.S. and yeah. politics, if you don't yeah. mind. How do you see the Democratic nom nomination shaping up? Well, um, I think as it stands now, and, and with all due respect to everyone that's watching this, it's it's um, regardless of who the incumbent is, even if the incumbent is is Donald Trump, uh, it's very difficult for incumbents to lose when the unemployment rate is three point six percent. And so I, I personally am of the view that. He, he will be hard to beat um, a year from now if the economy looks like it, it, uh, it does now. Um, I think, I also tend to think that the electorate hasn't uh, changed all that much in the last three or four years that uh, some of the more, uh, let's say, um, extreme parts of the Democratic Party would really be ascendant. I tend to think that the country is pretty, you know, it's pretty, 50-50, uh, if anything, it might be somewhat center-right. And, and some of the people that are running right now, I just think might be a little bit too extreme for, for the electorate. Now you have people like Mike Bloomberg that have discussed jumping in on the Democratic side, and that, that, would, change the, that would change the mixture quite a bit. But in terms of the, the state of play as it stands right now, and it could change in, in the next five minutes, um, I would still tend to give the edge to, uh, um, to uh, the president, I, I also think uh, that you are likely to have a populist left of center candidate going against right. Donald Trump. Okay. So your firm does uh, this market catechism, which I think is great. And I'm actually yeah. going to borrow one of the questions that I saw recently. Sure. And that was, if you were going to be in a private meeting with President Trump, what are the two questions you would most want him to answer? Well, the... I guess the one question would be, um, is, uh, is fundamentally recasting our relationship, trading relationship with China, 
right now important enough for you to risk re-election? And that would be, uh, I think, uh, an important question. The second question I would have is, uh, what's next uh, as far as uh, uh, what would, what would a, if you were to win a second term, what would be your economic plan for the second term? Uh, I think that's important because, uh, although it may not seem likely, that <laughs> I think there actually is some restraint uh, in some of the policy actions of the president as far as the economy is concerned. And I, I'm not convinced the second Trump term would be that great for the stock market. It may be a lot better than the alternative, but there are, um, he's still a populist, and, and there are certain industries like healthcare or social media or others that might yeah. you know, very well be uh, part of his program uh, if he were to be reelected. So speaking of the stock market, what sort of indicators are you watching most closely right now? Well, I mentioned before, I think the real Fed funds rate, uh, the Fed funds rate minus the inflation rate, uh, in my opinion, is an extremely important indicator to watch because it gives you some idea of, um, of the liquidity that's in the system. And right now, liquidity is ample. Um, I'd watch corporate profits, of course. Uh, that's always, uh, corporate profits are probably one of the strongest leading indicators. They've slowed quite a bit, but are still growing modestly. So uh, that's a good sign. Uh, credit spreads, always watch credit spreads. Because uh, uh, generally speaking, credit has led equities. Uh, and then just a, an economic indicator I'd watch would be unemployment claims. Uh, unemployment or employment uh, is, is a lagging indicator, but unemployment claims are so frequent and so uh, up to date that it gives you a pretty good indication of where the economy is headed. Okay. So just a final question to wrap up. You wrote a memoir in 2015 called My Side of the Street, Why Wills, Flash boys, quants, and masters of the universe don't represent the real Wall Street. Tell us, why did you write that book? And what message, messages do you hope that young people would take away about finance? Yeah, I, I, um, you're nice to ask that. I, I, I wrote it because I like to write, number one. And, and number two, I think uh, I've devoted my life to this business. And, um, and it, it started, I started in the back office in Brooklyn at Morgan Stanley. And I, so I've seen the whole thing. And I, I think uh, there's a perception of Wall Street um, that in many cases is unfair. Uh, there's six million people that do this uh, industry in, in the U.S. And, and the vast majority of them are honest people that work hard. That, uh, and I also think Wall Street, I really believe this, serves an important uh, social and economic function for an economy. And so uh, the memoir is you know, somewhat, uh, I think, somewhat humorous at times, just taking a look at all the things that, that young people have to go through to, to, to move on. Uh, but it also is um, a little bit of, a, a, um, a little bit of a, an apologia to say, you know, there, there are many things Wall Street does very well that people should be proud of, and they shouldn't feel as if they're selling out if they tend to be interested in finance and the investment business. It, can, it helps an awful lot of people. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.